Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. And welcome to the Weekly Typographic. A podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week. Hi, Olivia. Hey, Micah. I always ask how you're doing, even though we spend like 30 minutes talking about how we're both doing before we start. But how are you doing? I know. I'm doing well. I was in Chicago for a hot second. If anyone is in the Midwest, they know it was very unusually hot for May over there. Now I'm in New York. I'm hanging out, having a good time. Happy podcast day. Are you happy to be home in New York? Yeah, yeah. It was it was like a nice, nice moment to see all the family I haven't spent any time with for the past year and change. So that was like very refreshing. And I encourage anyone that's thinking about doing that to do that. Safely. Yeah, safely, of course. So yeah, it's good. How are you doing, Micah? I am also doing pretty good. I'm feeling pretty lively. Uh, Fun secret to share is that I've made a lot of progress on the membership site for the league. That is a fun secret. Yeah, I'm definitely excited to show you. And then, you know, we're going to kind of start rolling it out slowly to members pretty soon. We have to decide when it's ready, you know, make sure it it's all works and everything like that. But that's very exciting to see it coming together finally. Lots of fun stuff in the works at the moment. Things are happening this summer. Indeed. Also, quick shout out to Trey Seals. Oh my gosh, Trey Seals of Vocal Type. It was announced, I think last week that he has completed the design of a very big project. And that project was the book Spike by Spike Lee. And it looks like an enormous undertaking. He designed three, not one, not two, but three custom fonts for the book, which is nutso. And, and designed, designed the, book. the book. And designed the book. We've been hearing about this book under wraps. Like, he's like, I'm designing a book, and I'm designing fonts for a book. And I was just like, what book is this? Like, oh, my gosh. This he definitely just, didn't mention Spike Lee. I, he probably couldn't how, mention I'm it sure, but, like, how awesome. Incredible. And I love that the the cover type, and I think it's seen throughout the interior of the book as well, is based off of the famous love-hate brass knuckles. So... I don't know. He he is talking about the process of the typography on his Instagram page. Just incredible. And there was one font that was designed, I believe, just for the spine of the book. I love it. I've just never heard. I don't think anyone's really heard of a book that is, you know, designed by someone that designed the fonts just for the book. Like this is just kind of a really. That's a good point. I've never I've never heard of that specifically. It's unusual, but. I, I can't wait to get my hands on the book. It's coming November 2021. Nice. This is not a paid advertisement. This is <laughs> yeah. just from pure enthusiasm. All right. Nerd alert this week, Micah. Maybe I'll have you present what we're going to be talking about. <laughs> All right. So this was actually Steph's genius idea. And this week, we're kind of just going to talk really anecdotally about the pros and cons of both freelance and working in-house somewhere. I think we've had a few nerd alerts in the past that were sort of related to one or the other and both a tiny bit. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, people who are considering freelancing or considering switching to in-house. And you and I both have experience with both. And so we all kind of thought it'd be fun to just chat about that experience and share. Totally. Micah, I feel like I, we have debated this 
several times on our own time about mm. it. And I always used to come to you for advice, whether I was going into the freelance position that I was in for a year and change or when I went full time again. So you also always have great advice and I <laughs> want to make sure that you don't sell yourself short. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> All right. First article. Fascinating, guys. I really like this one. And it is titled, I studied the fonts of the top 1,000 websites. Here's what I learned. This was an article written by Michael Lee, a data scientist and entrepreneur. And he is a data scientist, but he calls himself design curious. And mm. so in a very data scientist type of way, he, he's creating a project called Design Data. It's a way for him to analyze aspects of websites and get insights to help better understand the world of web design. So taking very, you know, quantitative research to understand how web design is designed and how it's moving and what constitutes good design from looking at the top 1000 websites. It's very neat. We don't see anything like this on a regular basis. I don't know why. Yeah. It, it's super interesting to have somebody kind of come in with with such a factual perspective to the world of design because design has always been so taught by feeling. Exactly. I think the insights that he's already presenting, this is the first blog post, I believe, of many that he's going to publish. And he has a newsletter you can follow to see his research. So this first blog post is dedicated to typography. So each kind of post he's going to dedicate to a different aspect of web design. Already, I learned something new. From analyzing these websites, he found that 85% of fonts online are sans serif. Whoa. Well, no, I mean, you can't say all online, right? Like it's the top 1,000. Of the top 1,000 websites, which I'm sure are influencing websites that are not in the top 1,000 websites. But First of all, I think we can infer that maybe on the web, a majority of type that you're reading is sans serif. That's going to impact what people view as legible down the line. Because I think mm. we mentioned this last week that, you know, a lot of our reading happens on the web these days and digital and therefore on websites, on apps. If most of what we're reading is sans serif, so in a sans serif font, we're slowly as a society going to view sans serif fonts as more legible because that's what we're used to reading. The way that in Germany, maybe in the 1900s, black letter was the most legible fonts for them because black letter was seen in the most places, most common. So I think already we can pull interesting insights from here. And that's not the only thing that he researches. He talks about font family stacks and what are actually seen in those to get the top 10 fonts that are most common among the top 1000 websites. And then he talks about font pairings. So how when there's a paragraph style that's set in sans serif, how often is the header serif? And then how often is it paired with sans serif to talk about what we may be seeing most commonly as paired fonts, as well as looking at what type of fonts so of sans serif versus serif. He talks about as far as the paragraphs and then the headers styling seen in the website, what do we see most commonly in those? And, you know, we obviously see larger sizes and heavier weights are used for headers rather than paragraphs, but it's more common to choose a larger size for a header rather than a heavier weight. So there's, mm. there's all sorts of insights you get just from looking at numbers and graphs. And I'm just, this is very interesting. Yeah, this is very visually pleasing too, because you can scan it and see some really interesting graph. And then you like want to dive into the details that are written. 
For sure. I think something also interesting is he calculates the median ratio of font sizes between a header and a paragraph. Hmm. So I just think like even that's important. If you're doing web web design for the first time, let's say you're a junior designer and you need to make a wireframe of something, you might just guess, oh, this looks like the right ratio, but something like this, which scans ratios can tell you what is the most common one and what might just look automatically the most correct to someone that's viewing your website. So let me, let me ask you if I'm reading this graph correctly, this particular one. So it's saying Mm -hmm. the median ratio of H1 or, you know, the heading, different heading sizes to paragraph. Mm -hmm. And so is this saying that the, the median here is that a main header in H1 is mm-hmm. most often almost two times the size of a paragraph. Yeah. And that an H5 is almost always at lands in the middle of exactly the same size as a paragraph. Wow. Yeah, not that you're saying out loud. That's pretty surprising. It's interesting. It's. I mean, it's also interesting because that's probably very similar to my defaults. Really? Gosh, I love that. Fascinating. This is why. This is why for so long I have strictly believed that there's like way more science to design than we all think. This is, yeah, this is, you know, accompanying your data that you've studied for years. In like your programming head. is more art than we think and design mm-hmm. and design is more science and rules than we think that it is. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah I think this, this, this matches what, what you've believed for a long time, but I just think in general is so fascinating because like we don't look at this because designers don't want to do this kind of work that's so scientific most of the mm. time. They want to talk about, you know, how typography can make us feel things. But um, actually looking at this just seems like such an interesting tool. And I'm really curious what else he's going to publish about web design beyond typography. Yeah, totally. Very cool. Great find. All right. Yeah, thanks, Steph. Awesome find. Our next one is uh, a little bit more on the fun side of what we usually share. This, okay, so I guess we can start by Ono Type Co., Great Foundry, run by James Edmondson, produced or published a new typeface called Irregardless, which is hilarious because tons of people use this word. It for a long time was not even a real word, so it made grammar freaks like it so mad when they heard people say irregardless. Uh, but Wait, is I think, it a real word now? And now... Most recently, he even mentions at the very bottom of this article talking about how it was recently added to the dictionary because of how many people actually used it. Oh, that's funny. I missed that. That's that's hilarious. Yeah. So that, that was published. It is a very condensed font, I believe, <laughs> typeface, I guess, if we're getting technical, upper and lowercase. And it has a very quirky, almost crafted nature to all the letter forms that make it feel very individualistic and it looks great on large sizes and for display uses. Uh, And so he talked about the progress of how he made this typeface uh, starting from the beginning to the end. And it was very interesting, very insightful about how he came to Irregardless. I absolutely love the visuals. There's so many, there's so many instances of starting here, then the next step, then the next step. And like seeing hand sketches and how that then translated into drawn things and kind of went a little bit scripty in the beginning and then, you know, turned into a little bit more handwriting ish, but not totally. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really fascinating. I think he has great insights into how he in general makes fonts, typefaces. Uh, You know, you guys bear with me. So 
talking about how it was pretty unusual how we started this because I believe he just stretched vertically the font Wolf Sands light. And that's how this all began, which is hilarious because stretching fonts is something we're told never to do. Oh my God, that's awful. <laughs> but he just goes into it saying that's even unusual for him because he usually starts by sketching by hand first. And there's other things like he designed pretty much the whole A through Z all in uppercase with some lowercase figures and talking about how it's unusual for him to design high-waisted forms like P and F first because they pose spacing challenges. And even thinking in that way gives you like, oh, okay, so that's how a type designer actually starts approaching and why they might do all lowercase Hamburg fonts. But this unusual way to creating something is pretty inspiring for people that maybe have their own way of crafting letter forms that isn't the typical Hamburg fonts. And it's just inspiring to see how how unconventional takes can lead to something pretty interesting. And he even talks about the different containers that he designed that are part of the irregardless font. And that's fun to see because it's also a more obscure thing. I love his take on designing the superscript numerators and denominators for the mm. numerals and talking about, you know, when you have to make those numbers about half the size. He opened the apertures for several of these numbers to make it more legible when you put it in a fraction or for a superscript. So even that, the caption else. to that was one of my favorites, just saying numerators, meaning superscript numbers, right? Mm -hmm. Are never scaled down versions of the normal figures. They're completely redrawn to excel at their smaller size. And when you see this visual next to it, it's a perfect explanation of why. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, this is a, such a teaching moment as it is like a great, interesting read. One of my favorite stylistic sets of Irregardless is stylistic set four, because there's little hearts for the dots of the eye, which is just like so bold. And I think he even mentions the reason has to do with like the fonts kind of goofiness and that can justify having something that's pretty unusual for a type designer to put in there. I haven't seen dots on the lowercase i since I was in fourth grade, but I'd love <laughs> to see it reemerge. So very fun, very cool. He did some great marketing material for this as well. So go check it out. Shoot, our next article, you're you're gonna have to you're gonna have to explain this one to me. All right, guys. I'm not gonna spend too long on this because I know this is like some really deep divey nerdy stuff. Even for me, our friend Daniel, me and Daniel are TikTok pals. We're probably like skewing elder on the TikTok demographic, but he's always sending me really fun type and F1 TikToks. And so this one, there was someone explaining kind of a brief history of the long S in typography. And at the end said, go to this article to learn more. And so the long S, you may have not, you may or may not have seen it before. I think in, you know, our type of typographic knowledge, it looks honestly like a lowercase f that doesn't have the right crossbar. So it looks weird. But I started encountering it back in college when I'd look at like old Baskerville specimens and notice that there was this character that I thought was an F, but people were telling me was an S. But I literally, no one has seen an S look like a lowercase f in modern history. So then I looked into it. And this is a great overview of this form that was literally part of her alphabet and has totally gotten retired from it. <laughs> I don't really see a need to bring it back, but 
I think if you look at historical typography pieces or manuscripts, and if you're into letter form history like I am, it's really interesting. And you can think of this long S kind of like the way that we have a double story A and a single story A. You know, it was just another way to write a form. It wasn't its own sound or anything. It was just another glyph for a character of an S. I'm not going to spend too long talking about it, but there are great examples of this S in history and medieval history and calligraphic history, talking about when it appears in calligraphy, when it appears in our modern writing system and how it's used. Often this long S was used in the middle or the beginning of a word that had the letter S in it, but not at the end. The regular S we're familiar with is used at the end of the word. So, So you know, so weird. I've also, there. I think there's lots of speculation as to why this S got retired. I think a lot of it has to do with it looked like a lowercase f and people got confused when mm. we've had this typographic system. I think it started to become out of fashion in the 18th century around then. But it, there was this whole other character that, you know, people these days aren't familiar with that I just think is fun and wanted to include. That's educational and still sort of feels over my head. Like the way you described it makes sense for sure. But I don't know how you got that out of this difficult to read article. Oh, it's not so bad. It's a lot of pictures and looking at how it used to exist. It, it It's fun for the, for the true nerds out there. I do yes. love looking at Elvish script. So that's always fun. You know, it's actually really funny. I'm familiar. They talk about all the really old script, like Unchul's Black Letters. And Carolingian is the one I'm familiar with that has evolved to our modern lowercase letter set of the letter form seen there. But they talk about the really obscure ones like Visigothic and Beneventan. And then it also mentions Merovingian, which is the basis for the font Trickster that we looked at last week. Oh, interesting. Full circle. Wow. They all use the long S. So now I'm curious if Trickster has a long S in it because a lot of fonts that are based off of history like a lot of I think like Gaudi's fonts had a long s like I think there's a couple in the league catalog that have a long s featured in it so be on the lookout for that w-i-l-d crazy all right moving on our next one brings us to present day (laughs) it is a very cool project it is called tyrus and it is by Airbnb, which are often, I feel like, trying to be some leaders in design. And it's a free digital toolkit that helps freelance illustrators optimize their business. It's interesting that it's so targeted at illustrators. Yeah, you know, I read a little bit about it in the about page and they said, you know, this is targeted at illustrators, but can be used for other creatives. And I agree. I think it can be used for other creatives. I look through a lot of the um, material that they offer. But a lot of the more specific actionable things are, I think, targeted towards the way illustrators have to work directly with clients and the type of feedback that they get. This whole toolkit, I kind of, I got to be honest, I had a little bit of a hard time figuring out like how to navigate it because there's like Mm -hmm. a lot of buttons and places to look. But once I got there, they have so many interesting templates for First of all, email templates. And when I say that, they'll give you the writing to send to clients. Maybe if you're having trouble understanding vague feedback, they give you some language to use to kind of get the right get the right feedback from clients. Or if you need to understand certain things about nailing the brief, they'll give you good templates to be like, you know, do you mind giving me more background information so I can get a holistic sense of what you need from me? And really taking you through processes through the brief and then actually going through rounds of feedback and making sure that timelines are set to what you're comfortable doing. And so there's just a lot of information packed in this website. 
There really is. And I'm super impressed and also a little disappointed by how hard it is to find the information. There's not that much to do on the site other than discover the information, Mm -hmm. but something about the layout and the way that they're like hiding the information and you have to uncover it. And something about the hierarchy of the design here is just constantly throwing me off. Yeah. Yeah. I felt that a bit too, because like it's even when reading the about page about this program, it's hard to even know that you're getting like PDF templates that you can print out and literally keep for future use. And that are really helpful ways to figure out how to kick off a project, how to best present your work, how to demystify some of the feedback that might be unhelpful, which we often get from clients. But yeah. So if you're willing to search around a bit, there's really helpful stuff in there. I even was like, I mean, so I first opened this and I was like, what the heck am I looking at? This is like some Airbnb product. I don't understand. And then, you know, you can quickly read the intro and you're like, oh, weird but cool interesting and then i go through the whole thing and you know kind of fumble through the navigation and i was like why the heck is it named tyrus like how does that's so obscure and difficult to understand where they could have named it like the illustrator's toolkit or something you know and in their in their about section they describe it go ahead yeah, they talk about where the name comes from, and it's from Tyrus Wong, who was a Chinese immigrant who made extraordinary contributions to the art, illustration, and design world. So that kind of conceptually ties into it. I guess. <laughs> the UX here is the problem. That's what it is. Like, it's not it's not the visual branding. It's not the design. It's certainly not the content. The content is great. It's, it's totally the experience. And part of that experience is what the heck it's named when you first discover it. I see. I'm I'm glad that you point this out because even though there's incredibly valuable information, I was like, do I not know how to navigate websites anymore? No, <laughs> like, it's... am I behind the times that like I'm just a little bit confused on how to move around this web page? But I'm glad you mentioned that too. But in in any case, I'm obviously harping on that one thing. But mm-hmm. the it's it's basically a very intelligent and and detailed course mm-hmm. on you know, how to approach freelancing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like, so it's, I, I think, think it's probably worth the pain of navigating to discover what, I their, think so what too. their suggestions are. And especially when you're new to freelancing and there's tough emails that you need to figure out how to send, maybe something regarding, you know, I just can't make this timeline that you're asking for, how to phrase it in a way that's professional and gets to your point. I think that stuff is the most valuable. And I think this also can be used for lettering artists if you're working um, on projects. Those are really similar to illustration projects and clients. So certainly many creative freelancers can probably use at least portions of this Now is actually kind of a cool time to take a break and say, hey, thank you to our sponsors. Thank you to Adobe for helping to sponsor this week's episode. Their creative suite is one of the standards of design software and comes with a subscription to like a giant library of fonts that you can install, embed, use pretty much however you like. We've even got a few of our fonts in their library as well, if you're looking for those. And uh, we are grateful for them supporting the community with us. Totally. And thanks, too, to our members. Um, If you don't know, we've got a small and wonderful membership where for a tiny amount every month, you get awesome extra resources in our weekly typographic 
emails every week. Those are cool fonts that we found that you might want to add to your arsenal. Current jobs or gigs you might be interested in. Um, at the moment, it's only $5 a month, and we're upgrading a bunch soon. So hop in now if you want to get those goodies next week. Cool. Micah, it's time. It's time. We got a fun one. It's Nerd Alert, guys. <laughs> All right, so to recap the point of what we're about to talk about, it's to discuss, based on our experiences, the pros and cons of freelancing versus working in-house somewhere, right? And you had suggested kind of starting with our own histories so people know, you know, whether to listen to us or not. Exactly. Yeah. So your history. Okay, 60 seconds or less. Here we go. I started right out of college thinking I would never go freelance ever. I took a full-time job at Penguin Random House doing publishing, and I freelance on the side there. So I did a little bit of both. I was doing type design freelance. After Penguin, I was there for six months, went to David Stark Design, where I did event design for a little bit over a year and a half. Definitely had zero time to freelance because it was a very demanding full-time job that often was way over 40 hours per week, was incredibly burnt out after working there and had a really hard time finding mobility. So I was like, I don't even know if this is the industry I want to be in. Left, went freelance, did a whole bunch of stuff for a little bit over a year, and then landed at JKR, where I am now, being a full-time designer there at an agency. It's still in freelance sometimes, right? No, I mean, I'm mostly... It's just that and the league is what I'm focusing on. I do calligraphy projects if they came in freelance because that would really change up what I'm doing day to day. But now that I'm in an industry where I feel like I get to do stuff I enjoy day to day, I don't feel like I need the fulfillment of freelance necessarily. Okay. Okay. Your turn. My turn. All right. You helped me prepare this this version of history because I don't remember, but I actually just remembered that it started a little bit earlier than what we talked about. So I actually, right after graduating college, immediately got a job, a full-time job. I was designer number two at like what I think is one of the best and healthiest web development agencies. It was in Boston. And I, I only held that down for three months because I saw that and I was like, shoot, I want to do all of this. Mm. And so then I started a company, which was essentially me and my business partner freelancing. Mm-hmm. We were just freelancing together and calling it a company and did that for about, I think we did it together for like four years. And then I continued wow. on for a couple of years after that. And then I had a, I had a year or so stint of, I guess, first freelance teaching code and that turned into full-time teaching code Mm -hmm. and then went freelance again for probably a year and after that one of my freelance clients offered me a full-time job and so I worked for them for about a year as a Mm full-timer and then left to freelance and have been freelancing on and off the last few years all right so Yeah, I feel like your experience is majority freelance. My experience is majority full-time. Yeah. But we both have had our hands in both. And both have their pros and cons. So <laughs> let's start with like the more, the more I guess, generic of the two, full-time. Well, let me ask you this. I have, I have a question that might prompt us a little bit. Okay. When you were working full-time, why did you want to go freelance? This is a great question. So- Working full time, going freelance. 
all sorts of reasons. And I think it it was the myriad of reasons that finally pushed me over the edge to being like, I have enough excuses to do this freelance thing. And it seems more excuses than the not. So let's do it. First of all, so I was still fairly early in my career. I was, I'd say like two and a half years out of college and I was working for a year and a half in event design. At this point, I, I saw that the graphic design teams in event design are not the most valued people in event design Mm. industry. And typically, yes, you're bringing your expertise to the big picture, but it's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of burn and churn. It's a lot of getting stuff done because it needs to be done yesterday. So hurry up and do the best you can quality wise for the time you got. And it's never the star of the show. So there was those aspects that were making me feel a little bit like maybe I don't want to be here for the long term. Maybe this isn't the best place to harness my typography, love of typography, which wasn't really harnessed there. So it was the industry. I wanted to explore outside of the event industry. It was the the way I was valued. I was trying to get a promotion for like seven months. And I was basically one of the lead designers at the company. I was working on $2 million projects. I was working on really expensive projects with huge budgets and leading design. But I believe because of my experience and a myriad of reasons, I wasn't getting promoted. It was driving me nuts. I was... By experience, uh, you mean number of years in the industry. Yeah, number of years. I think that probably... Which I think is an experience. Yeah, because I had a designer that was working alongside me that was two positions above me, yet I was leading him in other projects. So... Mm. Everything felt backwards. You know, the day I quit is the day I also got the promotion. So, but you know, I think that was, that was bothering me and I knew I could make more money freelancing. And that was also a thing. So it's like, I knew my self-worth wasn't coming through in my title or my money. And I was just like, you know, I want to try new things and I want to make more money. Interesting. Okay. Those are my main reasons for going freelance. Can you talk about then in the time when you were freelancing, what made you want to get a full-time job? This is a great way to do pros and cons. I didn't even think about this. I love this. And I'm going to ask you the same questions. So I was freelancing. The majority of my freelance life was in the pandemic, which is crazy to think about, but Mm. it's true. So I was freelancing. I was, you know, freelancing in-house at some companies. So I I did freelance in-house at MKG, another event studio at Havas. Great things about freelancing. I certainly was making more money than I was full-time. If I'm thinking about, you know, the dollar amounts coming in, I was making significantly more than my first job for sure. But there were certain things about the way I was working that I didn't love. I felt like I wasn't, I was kind of just like swimming around, trying a bunch of different stuff and nothing quite felt like it was exactly what I wanted to do. I was working, I was helping startups with stuff. I was doing web design, which I didn't love. I was kind of being like, I'll take jobs because I need to make ends meet. And occasionally there'd be really cool projects. Like I'm so excited. I got to do album artwork for MXM Tune last October. And occasionally there'd be stuff that come up that I loved. But most of the time I was just like, this is fine. This is like, I'm treading water a bit. Like this is fine. But I wasn't like, this is what I really want to do until I land my freelance job with JKR, which I was doing packaging and I identity design, which I had none of those projects when I was freelance, Mm. basically. And so then I was like, oh, this is where I need to be. They have really cool clients. I can like 
really do deep work and I won't be like plugging holes as much as what I felt like I was doing when I was freelancing. Like, oh, they need someone to be a designer on this. You're a freelance designer. Come over here. We need you. But it wasn't necessarily because like, oh, we love your specific work. We need your skills specifically. It was like, oh, you're a freelance designer. I Interesting. Okay. Um, so I had those issues. Let's see. I mean, like I had a huge drought where I had no business for like three months when I was freelancing and that put things into perspective. That was towards the end of my freelancing where I was like, oh, this is scary. I had health insurance that was wildly expensive. And, you know, I was like ready to start having some more mentorship from people around me, which is not something that's easy to get when you're freelancing because like you're your own boss and you don't necessarily work on teams. You were obviously a mentor when I was freelancing. I'm like very indebted towards that. But I think like in general, if I wanted to get better at packaging and identity design, I really needed someone to help me through that. And there was not a way for that necessarily to happen unless I went full time. Just because there was nobody there available to you that could have helped with that. And then you met JKR and they Mm -hmm. were that. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, it was like being single for a while. Then like (laughs) I found, I found my partner. (laughs) Yeah. Interesting. It really did feel like that. And I knew even from the time I began going freelance, I was like, you know what? If I find a full-time place where it really seems like the right place, I'm going to make the deliberate decision. But, you know, instead of going full-time to full-time, I felt like I wouldn't be able to make a deliberate decision if I didn't do freelance. Mm, See, that sounds like such a healthy perspective. That is very similar to like jumping from relationship to relationship. You like wanted Mm -hmm. to find yourself first. I think I did a lot of that. Things I miss about freelance. When I was freelance, I had a lot of time for personal projects. I worked a lot on my like own things that I like doing. So I had a lot of calligraphy and lettering projects that turned out that I don't have the time to do anymore these days. So I guess I miss that the most from freelance and, you know, having a little bit more time to work on the league than I do now, but no regrets. Can I ask you something? You said one of the reasons you went freelance was because you knew you could make more money. Did you take a pay cut to switch from freelancing to your current job? Interesting. Interesting. You don't have to answer if you want to. So I think ultimately, let's say like if I never took any breaks with freelance and I just had work lined up week to week, yes, I took a pay cut. But that also wasn't happening for me at the time. Like I was getting work pretty sporadically. And so actually with the health insurance benefits at JKR, it was not a pay cut. Mm. See, yeah, that's a valuable thing to consider. I calculated I was paying like almost $700 a month in health insurance um, each Mm. month. And so even with sporadic, really good pay and the not so great pay, I didn't end up taking a pay cut going to JKR. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay, Micah, let's hear your anecdotes. Why did you, what drew you to freelance and then what drew you to full-time? Okay, when I was in college, I kind of led projects with a few of my friends and I forced two of my friends to make a group senior thesis, even though everybody was like, that's not a thing, you can't do that. And I was like, we're doing it. And so I kind of think, I think I got a taste of, like that's very similar to, what a good company was or our like freelance agency. So I think mm-hmm. I got a taste of that in college and then felt like you're supposed to graduate and get a job. And so I did, and I happened to find a really good one, but I got in there and I don't think they really knew what to do with me. Mm-hmm. I was very new to programming, but had programming experience in the languages that they were great at. So like, I wasn't good enough to utilize that in their fantastic ability context, you know? 
And they had their number one designer that they'd been working with for many years. And so I think they didn't know how to add in another designer yet. And so it was interesting because like the environment at that workplace was so healthy. They cared about their people. They didn't overwork people. They were like very selective about the projects that they would get so that it would be beneficial for everybody. They did Mm -hmm. so many right things in caring about the people. And that, that really empowered me where I was sitting there like, you know, they were kind of like, hey, you know, we kind of need like a new button for the blog. Could you like design a new button? And I would go in and redesign the whole blog and be like, mm. I think you could do this and do that. And they'd be like, oh, well, I mean, we didn't want all of that. Like we really just needed the button. And I remember that being my justification. Like I was watching them succeed at the business of it. And part of me was like, I want to learn how to do that too. And part of me was like, I can do more than designing buttons, you know? And so that, that prompted me to contact Caroline, who was, she, she was who I worked with in college and then started a good company with. And I was like, you want to work together again? And she was like, oh God, yes. Cause she was working at a company that was also not utilizing her very well. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like a very common problem for junior designers, especially when you have a really great design education and you're taught that you have to learn how to design everything. And then Mm -hmm. you get into a junior design position and you're like, but I I swear I can, I can do more. And then and like, that's when you're most ambitious is when you're starting out. And like, that's Mm -hmm. like, that's, it's such a conflict of interest. It feels like where it doesn't have to be all the time, but it's a matter of If you're going to hire a junior designer, you have to know that ambition is one of their strengths and you have Mm -hmm. to give them room to fly. And Mm -hmm. if you and your business don't have that need and don't Mm want to like let them experiment and try new stuff and give them the room to do that, then maybe you don't need a junior designer. Yes, exactly. Wow. It's weird, right? Because that's not how you think about it. Like you think yeah. that the, you want to hire the people who have the most experience to like do the best work. Mm-hmm. But and, and that's not to discount people with experience. But, you know, now that I have 15 years of experience or whatever, I do a lot of the same stuff because it works. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I, I don't find as much joy in experimenting as I used to. Not everybody's like mm-hmm. that, but that's me. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's interesting. So, that was, that was a lot of the impetus for going freelance was like big ambition and knowing that I could, I could do anything, even if I didn't know how to do it. And I was determined to do that. I love that. That's like, you know what we, we both, we made so little money. Really? I was going to ask. It was, it was hilarious. We were desperate to get a client in the beginning. And we, it was basically one of the people from our from our college experience who like wanted to hire us but it turned into a mess he he found out that we were going freelance and starting a company and so he was like well i could like use this branding and web web design work and uh we were so desperate to get a client that we quoted him 25 dollars an hour to split And we worked so hard on that. And it was one of those things where like, you know, we worked way longer than we said we were going to, but we only charged them for a quarter of it. And Mm -hmm. like all of those mistakes wrapped up in one. And I remember getting the advice from a programmer friend of mine to double your rate. Like just keep doubling your rate until people stop wanting to pay you. A great freelance tip. 
once you if you once you hear no from someone it's like okay that's when you know what your limit is but like which had, i am no, now learning 15 years in that no doesn't mean that that's a wrong price it just means exactly. you didn't sell it well enough okay wow i haven't heard that yet that's a good yeah. perspective that's i i mean I, I loved hearing no and even when i heard no from one client as a freelance i'd still keep <laughs> with it and someone's gonna say yes undoubtedly mm. Yeah, you can't you can't assume that one no means all no's. And it's so easy for exactly. us to like internalize that, right? Oh, and I I totally did. And I was so nervous. I I remember at the first client I asked for $75 an hour. I got a no. And then literally like 5 months later, I was like, "Okay, $75 an hour. That's my rate." And they're like, "Yeah, absolutely. We can't wait to have you." That's the difference. Like you just got to find the right people that value you for the right things. Yeah. So, do you want to do a brief intro as to why you went full-time? The two times you went full time. Yeah. Okay. So I should preface this by saying like, while I have a lot of experience with freelance, you, you had said you went freelance because you knew you could make more money. I knew I was going to make less money and I always have made less money. I have always made more money. Like, well, always the two times that I had salary jobs, I made mm-hmm. way more than I have. I can't say ever made freelance, but at the time. Interesting. So, so that was part of the appeal. It was like, you know, I knew that I was I was making peanuts before uh-huh. and that it was sporadic because I even though I've tried to teach myself a lot about how to get a steady stream of clients, I've really never implemented the great advice that I have gotten. Like it's there. I know it's great advice and I mm-hmm. just don't do it. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, it was always sporadic for me. And that meant that the and I, and I was always really picky. Mm-hmm. And even when I was poor, mm-hmm. I was still super picky and I'm still that way. I think I'm always going to be that way. And that's tough, right? Like <laughs> stand I stand by like, your principles. <laughs> right, right. And like, I don't, I don't want to reduce that integrity for myself. Mm-hmm. That's important mm-hmm. to me as a human existing. And that I have just accepted that the consequence of that is that like, I am probably not going to get rich freelancing, which doesn't mean that I, I want to say that about me because it doesn't mean that you can't, yeah. like, I know people yeah. who have, and yeah, totally. it's just, it's my personal strengths and weaknesses. I think um, our stories are both unlikely great companions for each other. <laughs> so I think, you know, going full-time both times I was extremely hesitant and that was, that was useful in the negotiations in both instances, because I was so uninterested in going full time, I ended up hitting their max salaries because I just, I was like, no, I don't, I don't want it. That's not, that's not a good deal for me. And then they're like, okay, well, this is literally the best we can do. Oh my gosh. Wow. Um, So, I mean, that might also be part of why I make less money freelancing. <laughs> oh my gosh. But still, this is, I think this is so insightful. And even like, I'm learning some stuff about your experiences, but like there you really ever, there no, there's no right answer. And there's no yeah. one way to, to be motivated to do it. Everyone has their motivations. There's certainly going to be a numerous pros and cons for each. And yeah, I think it's still just useful to hear people's different stories, like honest stories about it rather yeah. than the highlight reel because- uh, Oh, and everyone's given out the highlight somebody. reel. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And like, I think it's it's a big question. More people are moving freelance these days. You have a lot of support if you're going from full-time to freelance, but it's less common to hear the story that you move from freelance to full-time. My parents would disagree. <laughs> ah, I bet they would. <laughs> well, Micah, 
that was hilarious and very fun. Yeah, I hope I hope some piece of sharing those those details is insightful for somebody. You know, if that triggers somebody to go either way and improve a thing in their life that they want to, then you should do that. Exactly. And definitely feel empowered and make sure you know your worth because you are worth it. And thanks, Steph, too, for the idea. Steph yeah, is so great. Idea. All right, everybody. That was this week. If you have any questions or comments or fun ideas for nerd alerts or articles or links, just uh, let us know. Email us, DM me or Micah. We'll get to it. You yes. know, because I kind of mentioned the membership stuff. We've been talking for months about how the membership is going to be improving and getting better. And at the moment, it's $5 a month. And so if we're going to be launching stuff soon, that price is going to go up for when you get better benefits. So get in now. Yeah. Heck yeah. And we'll grandfather in that yeah, dollar sure. amount you pay now. So you don't have to worry about a raised price later. That's our like, that's our like early adopters. That's like our people, you know? Yeah. That hits our heart. All right. Thanks All right. everybody. And we will see you next week with even more great stuff. Do, 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 do.